This episode is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry is a powerful hosting service that can help your podcast become a success. You record and edit your show, log into WordPress, and start a new blog post. And presto, a pop-up loader appears. By the time your blog is finished, your podcast is loaded and ready to post. No third-party sites to log into. You never have to leave your website, and you own your own RSS feed. Blueberry allows you to schedule your podcast and will optimize them for iTunes and Google Play. I use Blueberry for this show, and I highly recommend it. It has been simple and efficient to use. I just upload, post my blog, and forget about it. Blueberry handles the rest. Try Blueberry today. Visit Blueberry, that's spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com, and enter the promo code The Renaissance for a free month of hosting for your podcast. This episode is also brought to you by The Renaissance Podcast Tour of Italy. Have you ever dreamt of traveling to Rome or Florence to see the great works of the Renaissance masters? Well, here's your chance. Join us for a great adventure to Venice, Florence, and Rome as we explore the art and history of Italy. We will depart on June 20th, 2017 and spend two nights in Venice, two nights in Florence, and three nights exploring Rome. We will visit many of the sites we've discussed during this podcast, including Florence Cathedral, Brunelleschi's Dome, we'll have an excursion to Pisa, as well as St. Peter's Basilica and the Vatican Museums in Rome to view Michelangelo's Sistine Ceiling. Sign up today by visiting the website, therenaissancepodcast.com, and click on the Tour tab for more information. The Tour ID is all caps DBIRD, D-B-Y-R-D, 2017. I look forward to seeing everyone in Italy. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance, episode 19, Michelangelo, from Florence to Rome. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Bird, and well, folks, we're finally here. The much-awaited, long-anticipated first episode in a series of episodes on the artist Michelangelo. I apologize for the delay, but after several intense episodes on Savonarola and Leonardo, I needed a little bit of time to recover before diving into a very intense series on Michelangelo. Just a quick breakdown of how the next several episodes will play out. In this episode, we will explore the early works of Michelangelo from his apprenticeship to the Pietà and the David. The next episode, episode 20, will focus entirely on Michelangelo's work on the Sistine Ceiling. We will need some time to flush out this monumental work he completed in the chapel. From there, we will temporarily depart from Michelangelo to discuss his rival and main adversary in Rome, Donato Bramante, who designed St. Peter's Basilica, among other major buildings in Rome. For episode 22, we will look at another rival of Michelangelo's, Raphael. 
Raphael worked just a few doors down from Michelangelo in the Vatican apartments, and the two were in an intense competition spurred on by the Pope. Even though we won't be discussing Michelangelo for a couple episodes, Bramante and Raphael are huge players in Michelangelo's story, and all three lived in the shadow of Pope Julius and St. Peter's. Finally, we will wrap up Michelangelo with The Last Judgment and the Dome of St. Peter's. After we finish Michelangelo, we will complete the Italian High Renaissance with Andrea del Sarto, a personal favorite of mine. He was a contemporary of Leonardo and Lorenzo de' Medici, but there really wasn't a good place to place him within the arc of our storyline from Lorenzo to Leonardo, Savonarola, and then Michelangelo. So what we'll do is we'll backtrack just a little bit so we can look at this important artist's work. Finally, we will discuss the man who's been the source of much of the information for this podcast, Giorgio Vasari. Not only was Vasari an important figure, as he was the first modern art historian, but he was also a student of Michelangelo and an important late Renaissance artist himself, with his most famous work being painted on the inside of the dome of Florence Cathedral. Just a reminder, all of the images we discussed during this podcast and any of the podcasts are available in a slide presentation on the website. That is www.therenaissancepodcast.com. With all of that out of the way, let's dive into Michelangelo. In Vasari's account of Michelangelo's life, we have the most extensive and detailed of all of his biographies. He was, after all, a devoted student and follower of the artist, and his biography was a tribute to the master. Unlike some of Vasari's earlier writings, he had first-hand knowledge of Michelangelo and his studio. Much of what he relates he either witnessed himself or he heard from the master. Vasari is far from an unbiased observer, however, and we have to take his portrait of Michelangelo with a grain of salt. He has a tendency to romanticize Michelangelo while disparaging his competitors, such as Bermonti. Nonetheless, it is the earliest biography of the artist and an important window into his life. Born in 1475 in the Tuscan hill town of Caprezzi, Arezzo, where Michelangelo's father, Ludovico Bonarotti, worked as a government administrator. The Bonarotti family were a minor banking family in Florence, before their bank failed, forcing Ludovico to work in Caprezzi. The family would return to Florence shortly after Michelangelo's birth, where he would spend the rest of his early life. According to Vasari, Michelangelo's father was a descendant of the Counts of Canossa. There's little evidence to support this, but it was believed by Michelangelo himself, and likely often repeated to his students and friends like Vasari. Michelangelo's mother suffered from an illness of some sort, and he would spend extended periods with his nurse and her husband, who was a stonecutter. Vasari quotes Michelangelo saying, If there is some good in me, it is because I was born in the subtle atmosphere of your country of Arezzo. Along with the milk of my nurse, I received the knack of handling chisel and hammer with which I make my figure. Ludovico's family continued to grow, and Michelangelo had several siblings. With little means of support for his family, his father eagerly sent the boys out to apprentice in the silk and wool merchant's guilds. However, Michelangelo was sent to one of the grammar schools that popped up in Florence in the decades prior to Michelangelo's birth. Unfortunately, he was a poor student, according to Vasari, and would spend his spare time drawing and working on problems of design. Michelangelo befriended a young artist apprentice named Francesco Granacci, 
and Granacci would bring drawings by Ghirlandaio, his master, for Michelangelo to copy. This only fueled his desire to become an artist. His father, however, was unwilling to consider a career in the arts for Michelangelo, and beat him in hopes that his studies would improve. When they failed to improve, Michelangelo was finally able to convince his father, Ludovico, to allow him to become an apprentice to Domenico Ghirlandaio, the best painter living in Italy. Michelangelo was 14 when his father signed the contract with Ghirlandaio. The contract records that Michelangelo was to be placed with Ghirlandaio for three years beginning in April 1488, quote, in order to learn to paint and to exercise that vocation, end quote. The contract states that Ghirlandaio will pay Michelangelo 96 lira over the course of three years. It wasn't unusual for an apprentice to be paid for their work, and generally a small sum might be deducted for room and board. Vasari tells us, though, that Michelangelo quickly surpassed the other students and rivaled the master himself. Even with the bias of Vasari, there may be some truth to this story. The fact that Michelangelo was paid does tell us that he was already well-skilled in drawing, and Ghirlandaio was able to put him to work immediately. Otherwise, it is likely his father would have had to pay Ghirlandaio some sum to take Michelangelo on as an apprentice. It was but a year into his apprenticeship that Lorenzo de' Medici came to Ghirlandaio looking for students. Lorenzo intended to found a school for sculptors, and they would train in the Medici Gardens under the guidance of Bertolda, a student of Donatello. Bertoldo was elderly but still renowned as a gifted teacher. Ghirlandaio recommended his two best students, Michelangelo and Granacci, for Lorenzo's school. Vasari, among others, has speculated that Ghirlandaio wished to eliminate competition and push Michelangelo into sculpture instead. This may be the case, but Ghirlandaio worked very close with the Medici family and would have wanted to send his best pupils to support Lorenzo's pet project. While working in Lorenzo's sculpture garden, Michelangelo is said to have undertaken a copy of a fawn. Michelangelo decided to part from the original Greek statue, though, and opened the fawn's mouth, showing his teeth. Lorenzo, being astonished and pleased, jokingly said, quote, old folks never have their teeth, end quote. Michelangelo, thinking that Lorenzo was serious, took to chipping out the teeth. Upon Lorenzo's return, he laughed at Michelangelo's simplicity, but because of his talent, he resolved to help and favor Michelangelo. From that point forward, Michelangelo was brought into the Medici household and treated as though he were a son of Lorenzo himself. Michelangelo received an allowance of five ducats a month, and he would remain in the Medici household until Lorenzo's death in 1492. It was during this time in the Medici household that Michelangelo came under the influence of Poliziano, Pico della Mirandola, and Marsilio Fucino. We've talked at great length about Poliziano and Pico in the episodes on Lorenzo and Savonarola. Pico and Poliziano were friends with the monk and influential in having him brought to Florence. Savonarola would also have a great influence on the sculptor. Lorenzo's sculpture garden was next door to the convent of San Marco, and Michelangelo could hear the fiery oration of Savonarola over the walls of the convent. He once told Vasari late in his life, that he still heard the voice of Savonarola ringing in his ears and that the monk haunted him all these years later. Though his art might have been condemned by Savonarola for its nudity, Michelangelo did share Savonarola's brand of asceticism. 
He lived most of his adult life very simply with a meager diet and simple clothes, and despite great wealth, rarely flaunted it. According to another biographer, Ascanio Condivi, the artist lived his later years much like a monk, spending time either working or in prayer. He seems to have abstained from physical relationships of any kind, though he did have intense emotional connections with both men and women, notably Cavaliere, one of his students, and a noblewoman, Vittoria Colonna. It was while he was still an apprentice that he completed one of his first masterpieces at the age of 15, the Madonna of the Steps. The Madonna of the Steps is a low-relief sculpture completed in 1491, measuring only 22 by 15 inches. He is able to capture the subtle effect of drapery over soft flesh. Already, we see Michelangelo's ability to turn hard stone into soft, translucent flesh. We see some elements of Donatello in his work, but even at 15, we already see some of Michelangelo's own personal style. His next major piece from this period was the Battle of the Centaurs, a piece that was proposed by the philosopher Poliziano and commissioned by Lorenzo de' Medici. With both of these successes under his belt, Michelangelo returns to Lorenzo's garden for more fervent study of classical examples. To improve his drawing and perspective, he spent many months copying the works of Masaccio in the Brancacci Chapel. This would lead to another infamous incident in Michelangelo's life. In Vasari's Lives, he tells of another apprentice in the garden, Torrigiano, who contrives to become friends with Michelangelo, but upon seeing his copies of Masaccio, becomes envious and begins to mock him. At some point, his jealousy boils over and he strikes Michelangelo, breaking his nose. Torrigiano is promptly banished from Florence, and Michelangelo suffers from a permanently disfigured nose for the rest of his life. Upon the death of Lorenzo, Michelangelo returns to his father's home. He remained close with the Medici family, however, and Lorenzo's son, Piero, would hire Michelangelo to verify the authenticity and value of antiques as they were discovered or purchased. It's uncertain if Michelangelo sensed the political turmoil that was about to erupt in Florence, but just a few weeks after he left for Venice and Bologna in 1494, the Medici were expelled from the city. Despite his sympathies for the teaching of Savonarola, it would be difficult for him to return to Florence. With the turmoil in the city and Savonarola's strict edicts against art, there were few commissions for Michelangelo. While in Bologna, he would complete several small pieces. He would return to Florence near the end of 1494, but, as he suspected, few commissions were available. It's at this point he becomes entangled with another Medici, Lorenzo Pier Francesca de' Medici. If you remember, this is one of the Medici cousins who briefly tries to seize power from Piero by making overtures to the King of France. Michelangelo is first commissioned to complete a statue of John the Baptist for Lorenzo Pier Francesca, but before long the Medici cousin hatched a plot for a more nefarious scheme, a cunning forgery. Michelangelo had a reputation for so exactly copying master drawings and master sculpture that they were often indistinguishable from the original. He would even imitate the effect of smoke or fox marks on a piece of paper. Vasari records one engraving of St. Anthony that Michelangelo copied by hand and tinted with color to mimic the original. According to Vasari, Michelangelo would borrow drawings of the old masters, make copies, and then return the copy to the owner while keeping the original for himself. 
He's also known for his ability to render copies of classical statues, as we saw with the fawn. It should not be surprising that the younger Medici cousin might attempt to enlist Michelangelo in his schemes. The plot hatched by Lorenzo Piero Francesca, intended to take advantage of a cardinal known for his love of antiquities, Raffaello Riario. If the name sounds familiar, it's because it's the same cardinal who gave the homily in Florence Cathedral on the day of the Pazzi attack. This is the assassination attempt that killed Lorenzo's brother and nearly Lorenzo himself. Michelangelo would complete a sculpture of a winged Cupid, and the two would bury it on the grounds of Lorenzo Pierfrancesca's estate. A few strategic whacks with a hammer and some dirt, and it would appear to be a newly discovered Greco-Roman masterpiece. Riario purchased the piece from a middleman, but soon after received word that a young boy had seen the pair working on the statue in the estate. When he heard this, Riario questioned the Milanese middleman, and upon learning the truth, forced him to return the money and take back the statue. However, rather than rebuking Michelangelo, he invited him to Rome because he was so impressed with his work. Michelangelo was invited to live in the household of Cardinal Riario, with whom he remains for roughly a year during 1496 and 1497. The cardinal immediately commissions him for a larger-than-life statue of Bacchus, the god of wine. The inspiration for this piece seems to be a lost sculpture by Praxiteles, described by Pliny the Elder. Bacchus is crowned with ivy leaves, and behind him is a fawn eating grapes from Bacchus's hand. The figure seems to be staggering, as though drunk, and Michelangelo heightened this with a high center of gravity, making the entire sculpture seem slightly off-balance. The piece was rejected by the cardinal, however, and instead purchased by Jacopo Galli, a noted banker and friend of Michelangelo. The hand with the cup was later restored in the 1550s, as the figure was missing its right hand and goblet. It's possible that this was the intent of the artist, and that Michelangelo broke the hand off so that it would seem more like an antique fit for Galli's garden of classical antique sculptures. Other than the Pietà, this is the only known work from Michelangelo's first trip to Rome. Not long after this, Michelangelo was commissioned by a French cardinal and ambassador, Jean de Billiers Le Grades. He wished to have a depiction of Mary cradling the body of Jesus at the foot of the cross. While not part of the biblical narrative, scenes of the Pietà were common since the Middle Ages, and we've seen artists like Giotto and Fra Angelico tackling the subject but never in quite the same way. This is more common to northern artists. The sculpture was meant to be part of a funerary monument for the cardinal, but it was later moved to St. Peter's Basilica. The piece was completed in 1499 from a single block of Carrera marble. Michelangelo is only 24 at the time. There's an obvious contrast between the heavy woolen robes of Mary and the soft, translucent flesh of both figures. Mary looks down at the body of Jesus with sadness, but also a sense of recognition that this was his destiny as the Savior. Mary is portrayed quite young, perhaps even younger than Jesus, with soft feminine features that contrast her robes. This would have been very common among northern artists in Flanders and the German states. One of the most unusual aspects of the two figures are their proportions, and how much larger the body of Mary is compared to that of Christ. If she were to stand, she would nearly be twice as tall as Christ, this was intentional on Michelangelo's part. He needed Mary to be large and robust in order to support the body of Christ, and he also wanted her to seem powerful. 
This oddity, however, is something that few notice because Michelangelo, like Donatello, was a master at bending the rules of proportion and perspective. Much of her bulk is hidden behind robes and the way Michelangelo has positioned her figure. So the two figures seem to fit naturally together with one another. The Pieta is the only piece ever signed by Michelangelo. According to Vasari, the story goes, he walked in to view the piece, and a crowd marveled at the work, but attributed to another artist from Milan. So enraged by this, he broke into the church that night and carved his name along the band across her chest. He would never sign another work again for the rest of his life. In 1972, the Pieta received extensive damage when a deranged Hungarian-Australian geologist, Laszlo Toth, attacked the statue with a hammer, shouting, I am Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. After 15 blows, he managed to knock off Mary's arm and chip her nose. He was never charged due to his mental state and was instead sent to a psychiatric hospital for two years. Upon his release, he was immediately deported back to Australia. The statue of the Pieta was carefully restored, and they were unable to find some of the broken pieces, so restorers had to take a block from Mary's back to reconstruct her nose. With the execution of Savonarola and the rise of Soderini, Florence was once again a bustling hub for the arts. Michelangelo returned to Florence later in 1499 after receiving letters from friends encouraging him to do so. The climate has certainly changed in Florence since the puritanical rule of Savonarola. With Soderini as Gonfalonieri, Florence was experiencing something of a mini-renaissance, with many new projects for the city. Leonardo returned to Florence along with many other great thinkers and artists who lived in exile while Savonarola was in power. The letters reaching Michelangelo urged him to return so that he might carve the abandoned block of marble outside of Florence Cathedral. Soderini had been in talks with Leonardo, as well as the sculptor Sansovino, about making use of the damaged and abandoned block. Few believed anything, much less a single sculpture, could be carved from the damaged block. It had been badly damaged and misshapen by earlier artists, and was finally abandoned. Michelangelo had desired to carve a sculpture from that giant block for years, and hurried home in the hopes that he might be able to complete a monumental work from the block that many thought were ruined. Soderini happily gave the block to the artist, believing anything he might make would be better than the eyesore it had become outside the cathedral. Michelangelo carefully measured the block and made a piece of wax in similar dimensions. From the wax, he carved a figure of a young David with a sling over his shoulder. This is the model that would guide him as he carved the misshapen block. Michelangelo accounted for the distortions of perspective, and the head is actually larger in proportion to the rest of the body. There is a story recounted by Vasari that Soderini, much pleased with the statue, shouted out to Michelangelo that the only problem was the nose was too large. Supposedly, the artist climbs up the statue and recarves the nose to seem more accurate from the ground below. The statue was originally intended to be placed along the roof line of the Cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore, but it was realized that the six-ton statue would be impossible to lift into location. A committee was then formed of the leading citizens and artists of Florence, and included Leonardo da Vinci and Botticelli. The views vary, but basically came down to two camps. Botticelli thought it should be placed next to or on Florence Cathedral, 
Leonardo and many others felt that due to the imperfections in the marble, it should be placed under the roof of the Loggia dei Lanzi on the Piazza Signoria. In 1504, it was decided instead to place it outside the Signoria, also known as the Palazzo Vecchio, replacing Donatello's Judith beheading Holofernes. The original David was moved into the Academia Museum in 1873, but a replica stands in its place in the original spot. Florence had always identified with the figure of David, a small city-state surrounded by larger kingdoms who continually defended its freedom. The city fathers saw themselves as David, standing up to the monster Goliath, in this case, Rome. In fact, David's eyes are fixed south towards Rome itself. It's impossible to know, but some have speculated that Michelangelo knew of the political implications of the figure of David as he was carving the sculpture. Rather than being shown triumphant over the head of Goliath, in Michelangelo's David, he is shown just before the battle, resolute and ready, trusting in God. The statue of David would become the subject of a legal dispute in 2010. The Italian cultural ministry claimed ownership over the piece, but the city of Florence disputes the state's claim, citing the original commission as evidence that it had always belonged to the city of Florence. After the success of the David, Piero Soderini commissioned Michelangelo for another piece, but this time a fresco. Not only would it be a fresco, but he would be in direct competition with one of the greatest masters of the day, Leonardo da Vinci. The two men had developed a strong dislike toward one another, Leonardo and Michelangelo often trading insults. Leonardo, referring to Michelangelo, called sculptors mere craftsmen who were constantly covered in marble dust like common laborers. The two paintings were to be opposite of one another in the Palazzo Sonorio. Leonardo, as we discussed in the last episode, finished his painting of the Battle of Anghiari, but because of his experimental techniques in fresco, it literally melted off the wall. Michelangelo was commissioned to paint the Battle of Cascina, where the Florentines were surprised by the Pisans while bathing, but they managed to secure a victory and prevent a complete rout. Unlike Leonardo, Michelangelo never got beyond the cartoon. We have numerous sketches for the Battle of Cascina, but the original cartoon has been destroyed. According to Vasari, an artist and rival of Michelangelo, Bartolomeo Bandinelli, destroyed the drawing while it was on display because of his jealousy of Michelangelo. Thankfully, his student, Sangallo, made a copy of the original cartoon, and we have many of Michelangelo's drawings, so we have some idea how it might have looked. Michelangelo would never finish the fresco despite his best intentions. In 1505, Michelangelo would receive a summons from the Pope and asked once again to return to Rome. The new Pope, Julius II, had a commission for Michelangelo, a tomb. It was to include 40 sculptures. But Julius insisted on Michelangelo's presence in Rome, despite his attempts to remain in Florence, and complete the project there. Michelangelo would never fully complete the tomb, however. Just a few years into the project, the Pope would eventually have a new assignment for him. A fresco. A ceiling, in fact. But that's for the next episode. As we wrap up this episode, I have a few announcements. The Renaissance Podcast will be making a move to North Carolina. I don't see any interruptions, but just in case there are, you'll know why. Nothing will be changing as far as the trip to Italy. We'll still be departing from Atlanta for those that are flying through Hartsfield. Do be sure to like us on Facebook 
or you can follow me on Twitter at Dennis Bird. If you're enjoying the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes or Google Play. I would really appreciate it. Be sure to join us next time as we dive into the monumental work that is the Sistine Ceiling.